0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But
1: there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this
0: juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping— Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
2: With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. <laughs>
0: Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardeners' World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts.
2: When we think of our gardens, we want to think of lush, healthy plants grown out of highly fertile soils. But what if I told you that there's a man out there who wants to think about trash. One man's trash is another man's treasure. And that's how John Little sees Brownfield sites, a pure opportunity of how he can be inspired to create gardens that are good for sustainability, wildlife, habitat creation, whilst absolutely looking glorious. Hi, John. Absolutely brilliant to have you here in the studio today.
1: Well, it's great to talk to you, Eric, obviously, and always.
2: Oh, bless you. Well, it's (laughs) been, I'll take that as a very lovely compliment. But I mean, we have known each other for a little while now because my first meeting with you was at your wonderful home, at your amazing space that you've got down there. And um, I just can't believe what's happened in the last sort of four years since seeing you, how this explosion of brownfield sites and habitat creation, and all of that just seems to be just be gaining so much momentum. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I feel like, uh, it, yeah, I don't know when the fad's going to end. I'm hoping it's not, because uh, I feel like we're vaguely in fashion at the moment after all these years. But you were there quite early days, and, and I remember you being there as one of your, that was one of the early broadcast you did
2: yeah so we were
1: both a bit of a novice at the game (laughs) and uh, I remember spending most of the day nodding and smiling which is what uh, the the day ended being so but really really nice and I mean I think I don't think it's it's necessarily so much the brownfield thing I think it's just the the conversation around a a way more complex a way more interesting landscape I think over the years it it, we defaulted to some sort of Amenity sort of space. And I think people want a lot more than that. And we absolutely need a lot more than that with the climate emergency. So it's wonderful that we're discussing all this stuff.
2: Yeah. No, I feel really um, excited that three, four, five years on that we're, we're still now having conversations and we continue yeah. to have lots of conversations. So I guess what we need to do is roll back and kind of set up this sort of whole premise of how you work, because not everybody out there sadly doesn't know what you do, but they will at the end of this podcast?
1: Well, I guess I'd always been a plant person initially, and that in effect, a garden person. When you start to get a bit more space and you start to realise there's so much more stuff comes out of plants, plants are kind of the starting point, and then everything expands out from that. And when we first moved in, I was doing the usual kind of wildlifey garden thing, meadows, ponds, that kind of stuff, which we got done. And then, I don't know, about 15 years or so ago, I started to look at spaces and realise that, for instance, the paths often had much more interesting plants in them than the borders did. And certainly they had a much more wider variety of plants. And of course, we'd also been involved in building green roofs for over 30 years. And green roofs, in, in essence... you know, you you dictate the soil on a green roof. It's not like the ground. You decide what soil you're going to put there. And all sorts of wonderful things happen on green roofs. And it was that realisation that you didn't have to have just topsoil to garden with. And certainly from a wildlife point of view, if you have a variety of soils, in effect, you're going to get more variety of plants and you're going to get more variety of wildlife. That was kind of the starting point, really, that realisation that poorer soils in essence, deliver more diverse plant communities, which is the catalyst for all this. I guess,
2: I guess it's almost counterintuitive in some ways when you talk about low fertility, given so much abundance, because, you know, as in true gardening, we're always taught to feed the soil, have healthy soil, lots of microorganisms, all of that type of thing. But I do find that your work is interesting because you do talk very much more about this lower fertility opportunity that comes through, through these different substrates, which I want you to describe actually, so that people understand that.
1: Well, the first thing is, I guess I wasn't taught anything. So that was the starting point. So I had no training and no background at all in horticulture. So... I guess that might have freed me up a little bit to not think of just topsoil. But I think it's an illusion. I, I, I just want to be sure that I'm not suggesting that we rip out topsoil and throw it away because having that mixture of, of fertile soils, non-fertile soils, and if you want to grow leafy veg and if you want to have a massive herbaceous border and you've got the maintenance to do that, well, it'll all look great, you know. But I guess because of the many years we worked with in social housing, that gave, I, I was obsessing about... Getting Dixter on the cheap, I guess, is what (laughs) I was after. So trying to get that amount of colour and diversity and that wonderful stuff that Fergus delivers, but trying to get it within a maintenance budget for a social housing estate, which is pretty impossible on fertile topsoil. The maintenance is way too heavy. As soon as you reduce the organic material in the soils, you reduce the maintenance. It's a pretty much direct correlation. So that was, for me, one of the real drivers, is, is this is an opportunity to deliver... That wonderful horticulture, but in places that you would never see it. Okay. So I think pulling fertility down gives you a chance to do that.
2: We've established about this low fertility. Let's now think about what are those low fertility substrates? And when we use the word substrates, we mean a material that can have plants growing it.
1: Yeah, Yeah, in essence, which is pretty much everything. Yeah. Which yeah. is everything. Yeah, okay. Um, pretty, pretty much everything. There's two things really. There's either waste, so that might be construction waste, the recycled materials that have a former life, uh, and then there's mineral soils, which essentially is just where we pull the topsoil off of the ground and whatever it is underneath, whether it be chalk or sand or base clay. So there's those two mixes, and I guess. The ideal th- way to actually use those things is to have a conversation early days when you're making any changes to your garden or especially if there's a big development going on, for instance, any of those things, because there's that disruption to soils that goes on around construction and development. And a lot of the time, the topsoil gets taken away and put in a corner for the time being of the uh, construction. So that's the perfect time to think, can I reuse this stuff that I've actually generated by what I'm working on and what I'm doing in my garden or when I'm building a house or building a housing estate? Have the conversation really early days before the construction starts because then you can predict the waste that's going to come from the construction and you can start to design that back into the landscape. And I think that's the wonderful thing. Then you have that wonderfully sort of circular economy thing going on. So doing that is a good thing. And if you decide to do that, then you can start to deliver huge possibilities regards to biodiversity and wildlife, not just by growing stuff in there, But by maybe mounding it or maybe keeping it vegetation free for for ground nesting bees. Or there's a whole kind of structural element to reusing these materials. It's not just about growing plants in. And I think horticulture, in one way, has, I'd say, and the, the, the kind of drive towards wildlife gardening has missed that slightly. There's a huge, great emphasis on all the important things like hedges and ponds and flowers, which is great, but there's a bit less emphasis on. Where's the thing going to hibernate? Where's it going to breed? Where's it going to warm up? And you can create all those wonderful places with waste. With materials that you probably have got on site, instead of putting them in a skip, I think that's just—it's just that conversation before you get rid of stuff.
2: Okay, so that's—I mean, obviously, on large construction sites, there's huge amounts of, like you say, soil that would come off, materials coming in. So if we think of it on a garden scale, so it could be, for example, somebody's going to take down a shed. Often there's a a shed base that's there, isn't it? There's a a concrete slab that's been there. And that's the type of thing that would ordinarily have gone off to the skip. And you're saying there's an opportunity there to
1: use that material. Well, usually, I mean, a basic shed base has usually got a bit of hardcore underneath it, which would have been a recycled material probably in the first place. And then it'll have a concrete base on top of that. I think there's two things to look at if you've got left with a concrete base, which is quite interesting to think about. One is... Have you got the time and money to do much with it straight away? If you haven't got the time and money to do much with it straight away, then have a look at it as it is. Have a look where the cracks in it are. You could probably plant up the cracks. You could just utilise the interesting kind of fissures and stuff to seed and to create a mini sort of meanwhile landscape, I guess. Mm -hmm. That might be the first thing you might want to do if you haven't got time to sort the base out. The second thing is if you're actually taking the base up as you're breaking it up, you're going to have a mixture of material sizes, aren't you? As you're knocking it around to get it up, and those material sizes are really interesting because if you had just the bigger sizes just piled in a corner, they would probably not vegetate. They would stay when the sun got on, they would warm up really quickly. They, they've got lots of niches and bigger voids in them. Great spaces for mice to nest, great spaces for insects to warm up on. The smaller material that when it's crushed up and the fines and stuff then you can then use that actually to grow uh, plants in very easily. And plants, believe me, grow incredibly well in this stuff. You know, that's the wonderful thing about plants. There's a whole conversation around what actually did our plants evolve with because most of them have evolved over many, many millennia. They probably evolved initially in fairly poor soil. So there's a lot of plants very, very well adapted to that sort of condition. And as soon as you introduce that condition, that kind of lower nutrient, freer draining probably. You know, if you're on a clay soil like we are, for instance, I don't have any free draining soil pretty much. As soon as there's a bit of waste and a pile of rubble and silt, I've got a free draining substrate. So that then opens me up to a whole new range of plants because that's the other thing as a plant person. As soon as you mix up the soils and substrates, you open up your plant choice massively. And as soon as you don't rake everything flat you open up your plant choice. So for instance, at our place, we've got piles of sand, mounds of sand. We've been messing around with some Mediterranean stuff like cistus, for instance. We put it on the top of the mound, it's very happy, lovely, sits there all winter, no problem. Put it on the bottom of the mound, it's too wet, too cold in the winter, it dies. So immediately by using different soils and different topography, your plant choice is huge. And the other thing about the, the substrate thing is that you can tend to dictate what the vegetation is going to be like. So, for instance, if you've got a pile of just concrete, that's fairly hostile, fairly um, stressed conditions, the vegetation is going to be quite short. If you've got more of a brick mixture, more clay, more fertility, the vegetation is going to be taller, and so on and so on with all the different soils and chalks. So, you can sort of dictate what you want the vegetation to do by what substrate and what soils you use. So you're flipping the thing, really. And people always, they come to my place sometimes and think that I've got any understanding of of, um, planting schemes. They go, oh, you know, you could do a planting scheme. no, I've got no idea. But uh, you can use soils to dictate what you want the plants to do. So we direct so with a mixture of seeds onto various substrates and then you'll find obviously the vegetation will develop in different ways on different substrates. So it's kind of done the, plant, the planting scheme for you. That's the way we, we tend to work. And it, that, that, it's quite a joyous and quite a freeing thing to do it that way round, rather than agonize over what plants I'm gonna put in at the start. Now <laughs> I know that's slightly counterintuitive, <laughs> um, but that's the way I found you know, works for me. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn
2: signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
2: Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Well, it's a different way in, isn't it? Because in this instance, you're coming, which I guess all of us should do really, but you're coming from the bottom up, i.e. creating the, as you say, the topography, but with different substrates, different materialities, as opposed to going down to the garden centre, choosing all the flowers that you like the look of and then bringing them home and hoping that they work. So it's a different way of of looking at your garden, but I just want to grill you again as I always do. John, remind me about the sands. Which sands am I allowed to use? So, you know, let's just make sure that for the listener that they can really be very clear about the fact it's not just going down to the builder's yard and picking up any old sand, for example, or just picking up a bag of cement. You know, let's be really clear about that and so that there's some um, ideas that people can take away in terms of where to get some of these materials?
1: Okay, so the first thing I'd say is, if you're doing any work, or if, you've, if you're whatever the garden you've got, you probably know what your base soil is, whether it's ballast or sand or chalk or clay, for instance. So find out what that is. So because you may well, for instance, have very interesting and, and great sand for, for habitat underneath your topsoil. So if you decide to I don't know. Maybe you want to do a veg bed where you need lots of lovely, lush, you know, rich topsoil. You might want to build a bed for that, take your topsoil off, put that in the bed, grow your vegetables there, and then you're left with the your subsoil, which may well be an interesting sand or or chalk. so just pure chalk. I know people gardeners hate that. I know it's horticulturally, it's a bit of a nightmare. But if you can just get your base chalk, put it in a pile put a seed mix on it. You don't have to garden it too much. It will be very interesting and you'll get quite a lovely range of plants. So have a look under what you've got because you don't really want to be carting stuff in because obviously that's a bit more energy and stuff. So have a look at what you've got under your garden already. Make use of that if you can. If you want to experiment with other stuff, then have a look what your local sand would be. Have a look what your local geology is, for instance. So if you put sand in your garden that's local to your area, then Local bees are going to be much more inclined to use it. So if you can get local stuff, that's great. I know that's quite tricky in small quantities. If you can't do any of that, then you can buy construction sand, standard, you know, building brick lane sand, sharp sand, um, ballast. You can get them anywhere. And the other construction wastes are sold all through the construction industry. So the wonderful thing is all these crushed materials that come from demolition are there for construction already. So they're all graded, they're all readily available, they're all cheap-ish. So in essence, we've, we just go to our local recycling place that crushes all this stuff and sells these materials back. And the choice of materials is huge because they, they have to be quite particular for construction what they're gonna use. So there'll be 50 millimeter crushed, 20 millimeter crushed, some with fines in, some without fines in. There's all that wonderful mix of stuff that's used for construction and we're just suggesting that you could use it in landscape.
2: Which is, you know, hugely experimental, which is what gardening is also about you know it's having that I guess that energy and and just explore and see what happens I remember when i come away from yours literally with my eyes we, eyes wide open going wow to what you was doing because it was so new to me and at that time I had a lawn and little borders and I remember you saying to me that I could put down like a bit of a, a weed membrane let's say on an area and actually introduce a bit of topography and put my sand pile on top of that. This doesn't have to be huge space, was your big message to me. This is not about having acres that you could introduce tiny small patches in the garden.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think just a pile of sand in a sunny space It's especially something like you want a slightly finer sand, like bricklaying sand, for instance, is really good in a sunny space. That's really good for ground-nesting bees. You don't have to put a membrane down. You can put a membrane down if you've got very vigorous vegetation underneath, you know, if you've got creeping thistle or stuff that you might not want to suppress. But generally, you don't. And if you can make a reasonable-sized mound of sand in a sunny place, you're probably going to get ground-nesting bees in there, which is... And there's a lot of reports going on about bee decline. And, and one of the major contributors, especially with, obviously, solitary bees, which, are, is, you know, there's 270-odd species of solitary bee in, the, in this country, and three-quarters of them virtually nest in the ground. And most of the, of the problem is not necessarily a food source for them. It's actually a, a place to nest because they generally like sunny, very sparsely vegetated, sandy ground as a kind of general rule. Well, there's not much of that about. There really isn't. You know, uh, one is it vegetates very quick, and two is that um you know people and gardeners, we've all had this thing about we don't like to see any ground without plants on, which is which is legitimate. But if you want to get that mix of especially invertebrates, it's lovely to have a small area of of, of bare ground. Yeah. So you can do a sand pile, you can do a, just a mini B hotel, but you don't have to buy anything too fancy. You can literally just have an untreated piece of timber. But the most important thing is to is if you're going to do that is to drill holes a nice mixture of holes from three millimeters up to eight or nine millimeters. Don't if you end up with just bamboo canes, you'll only end up with bigger holes. So stick a post in a sunny place, drill holes between three and nine millimeters as deep as you can into the post. Put that in a sunny place. That will take care of the other sort of quarter of the bee species that nest in holes. And then the other key thing about using these materials is because they're construction waste, because they're mineral source, they don't have any weeds in them, right? Now, as a gardener, you know, unless you buy heat-treated compost, you're never going to have a weed-free place, are you, in topsoil, it's Always a battle. Yeah. So that's the joy of these materials is that you can put them down. There's no weed seeds in them. You can direct sow them because that's the other key thing. Instead of buying plants, you can direct sow with a tiny pack of seeds. Now, if ever there's a way of creating a landscape that is the most sustainable, that is it by a mile. But it's very difficult to do in topsoil, as we all know, because everything else comes up apart from the stuff you want. So these substrates give you the opportunity to direct sow. And if you direct sow, that's a whole world of wonderfulness. That's that's just the, the, the joy of seeing what's coming up, where it's coming up. And then the joy of kind of editing it during the first year by hand weeding yeah. you know I mean get yourself a glass of wine wander out <laughs> of an evening you could pick out the ones you don't want leave the stuff you do want yeah that that whole world is a joy for gardening and that's probably my world of gardening but
2: you like beer though John well you're more yeah. beer than
1: wine well maybe I'm, I'm, more middle, I'm, I'm, go, moving, yeah. I'm moving middle <laughs> class now man I'm on, I'm on the wine um so to relate that back to to gardens it's don't be afraid of disruption. Don't be afraid of a little bit of chaos and actively try and create more diversity in structure and soils in your garden. And then you're kind of mimicking a brownfield site and then you're going to get the, all the things that brownfield sites get. So,
2: Well, I think when people hear the word chaos and do get worried about messy and, you know, uncontrolled because that's not what we do as gardeners. I sat in your garden and it was for hours after we'd finished filming because it was just so magical. And the reason why it was magical is because it was truly alive. We just could sit there. Things would be flying by us. There's a sound, right? There was the A13 in the far distance. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> it's not bad but, but, you know, it's a little bad time <laughs> there. But, um, but it was the fact that you could walk around the space and it's more than just what is visually there. Now, John, you're... A reasonably modest man. I mean, there's times when you can show off a bit, but you know, you're reasonably modest. But I have to say to the listeners that if you are able to have a look at some pictures of John's place online, the design element is still there. There are, it is not just this pile of rubbish with a few plants stuck on top definitely not you know you have there's a consideration to what's been done obviously the work that you've done with green roofs you know you look at every surface the floors the ceilings if you like you know you're always looking what's great about you john is you're always looking for opportunities for what else might live in this space and that's the difference and actually as gardeners who are creative as well being in a space it is. How do you create your own visual chaos? Is is the thing. So I think that's the thing. It's not. It's not. It's not just mess. It's that's absolutely just left. not. No. Mess. It's no. Not. I think I, think. I think that's important. Just to get no, across. No. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I. I think what we are kind of known for to an extent is taking habitat and taking you know wildlife gardening and carefully designing it I I'd, I'd like to think we are anyway I mean you know we we take a lot of care and it is a bit of a, a misconception to say that I like messy I like messy when it's aligned with very neat controlled beautiful lines I like the contrast and I think that's what's wonderful about very urban places and brownfield sites is that, that contrast of very man-made, very kind of structured and then wild on the other side. And you, neat gives you wild mm. in the urban context, I'd say. So, yeah, very important. And I think as garden designers and as, uh, you know, if we want to create habitat, let's say I always think of, the, you know, like the pile of pallets in a community garden, right? Pile of pallets, put loads of stuff for bugs. Great idea. Couldn't use it outside a corporate head office in the middle of London. Is how you take the habitat niches and you make them look really cool. Yeah, And it's this same argument as I've sort of been talking about for a while of a shopping trolley in a pond, for instance, pretty abhorrent, pretty terrible, but creates incredible wildlife potential. It's how we say, right, no, we don't want a shopping trolley. We'll have a stainless steel sculpture in this pond that will provide the same habitat niches, but look really cool. And and in the same way, I think we should start talking about uh, public art and why can't we incorporate niche and habitat into public art? And public art, that could be a part of the remit for the artist is to say, we want you to make something beautiful. Here's a, a particular structure that this particular insect likes. We want you to incorporate that in your art as, and make it look cool. So there's basically opportunities in every piece of infrastructure, you know, whether it be a a bike shelter or a bin shelter or a bollard or a lamppost. And certainly within architecture, there's incredible opportunities to create niches and habitat within the structure of the actual building. And uh, it feels to me like if I was an architect, which i'm I'm definitely not, mm-hmm. if I was an architect though, then this kind of movement towards creating niche and habitat within the, the, the you know the man-made structure of where we live and where we work, what a joyous job that that is! You design the place for people, and then you have the opportunity to design it for all the other wildlife. You know, I mean, it, it just just make your job so much better, I guess. So I think there's man-made stuff we shouldn't be afraid of. It we should just design it in a way to allow wildlife in. You know.
2: Yeah, and that's 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 the key end to that sentence. Let in wildlife in. Sorry, I just had this thought. I I have a friend who um they have got a flat and it's um it's just all old broken pavers outside of course if it's rented it makes it quite difficult to sort of think well I can't really do very much because I've got this small little patch of land great but I can't do much but I just wanted to go back to that idea of what you're going to be doing at Poppy your daughter's home which has got a big concrete um, pad that could be something because that's a lot sometimes happens is not it in urban areas people just get left with this big old patch of nothingness
1: yeah well I think block pavers it, it felt to me like block pavers are so kind of omnipresent really that it would be cool to think about what we could do with those and we've messed around with my daughter Poppy's garden where we've all we've done is looked at areas of block paving and gone right well we're going to just lift up those pavers we're going to lift them up we're going to make a interesting shape by just lifting them up that's all we're doing taking them up underneath there is sand and underneath that is probably type one as a base for the block paving brilliant place to grow plants so take the block pavers up Fill the space in with a bit more sand, sow your seeds. That's exactly what we did at my daughter's place. Plants love that. they love that. And that literally, what's that cost? What? bit of labor, tiny bit of sand, five pounds worth of seed could do you a massive area. so and the joy that that brings, and no energy, no carbon, no nothing. You can stack your block pavers up somewhere else in the garden and create another habitat with that. So, that's what, and we're also going to be doing that on on Poppy's front drive because front drives, you know, I mean, round us and round most places, but certainly round us where we are, you know, most people have got cars; they need a place to park their car. And I think it's a certain arrogance sometimes to to, to suggest that they're, you know, they're a terrible person because they park their car on the front drive. Absolutely not. I'd say, you know, life's too difficult; you need those places. So what we said, to, I said to Poppy was. Don't pull any weeds out of your front drive, block paver. Just leave all your weeds. Your cars are in and out. You're in and out. Leave it for six months. See where all the weeds come up. See where you don't tread and where your car doesn't go, because they're a very good indication of that. Then we'll lift all the block pavers up where the weeds are, and then we'll sow them with flower seeds. And that's what we're going to do with Her Place in the spring. And I think that could be just a tiny intervention where we don't take away the car park space, but we kind of boost the biodiversity potential and the joy actually of having a, a, a block paved driveway yeah because there's nothing that bad about it you just got to make it a little bit better well, you? There you know a few things about it that
2: a bit better well, water you know, management. there's a lot there's of a them bit, around. there's a little bit of water management issue but well, we won't, you but go it's not you, but, you can take you know. the
1: pavers at the out of the bottom of your slope then I don't know but you've got to be careful obviously you've got to be careful not to take your pavers away where you're driving over because you mm. have to put cement back to stop them from moving yeah that, yeah that you'd have to consider but certainly those corners where you don't go with your car or you, you should be fine.
2: No, definitely. What we need to do, in essence, I think you've been saying, is it's the opportunity. It's going back into our gardens, isn't it? And really seeing opportunity. Oh, John, I could, as ever chortle and chat forever with you because I always find it really really fascinating but we've come to the end of the time so thank you so much for coming in and sharing all of your knowledge and experience and um, and as ever inspiring me so thank you Well, Thank you
1: (laughs) Thank you for being so kind (laughs) (laughs) Cheers
2: Make sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode New episodes will be released every Thursday. For more information on everything we've discussed today, go to gardenersworld.com.